in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. It seems to me that we've got a more experienced profession now involved in class actions and we've certainly got a more experienced judiciary who are aware of how these actions run and of what measures they need to take to protect all parties involved. Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Justice Sarah Derrington, President of the Australian Law Reform Commission, who requires little introduction. Prior to her appointment to the Federal Court in 2018, Justice Derrington was the Dean of Law at the University of Queensland and a barrister specialising in maritime and shipping law and general commercial law. The past president of the Maritime Law Association of Australia and New Zealand, in June this year, her honour was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia for significant service to the judiciary, the law and to legal education. Justice Derrington, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of On Just Terms and being so gracious with your time. It's my pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here. Now, in our podcast series, we're exploring the future of litigation and uh, particularly in complex corporate litigation. Uh, under your guidance, the Australian Law Reform Commission has examined a number of aspects of the, the corporate litigation environment and there's been some focus on class action litigation. I'd like to talk to you about the important balance that class actions need to achieve between opening up a, a, an important pathway for access to justice, but also recognising that, that I suppose with the emergence of third party litigation funders, there is also uh, a latent tension about the use of the system for entrepreneurial purposes. Maybe that's the price of the access to justice, but stepping back from that detail and that debate, uh, your observations on whether class actions are achieving their purpose. I think over the last five years when I have become quite heavily involved in this, I've been encouraged that the system is serving the purpose of achieving access to justice for those who need it, whilst also uh, constraining uh, to some extent the entrepreneurialism that really came to a fore, I think, um, in the early 2000s in, in and around shareholder class actions. And I see this because the, the breadth of the class action claims that are now coming before the courts has increased enormously. And they are the sort of class actions where the, the smaller person really needs access to justice. And it seems to me that we've got a more experienced profession now involved in class actions. And we've certainly got a more experienced judiciary who are aware of how these actions run and of what measures they need to take to protect all parties involved to the litigation. And Judge, that resonates, and so does the fact that the courts, um, this is more a comment than a question, but interesting observations, in it, as well as being novel in the way they run the procedure of the class action, it is extraordinary how focused they are on the interests of group members. And so I, I guess that's the natural uh, firewall to the entrepreneurial use of the system. Really, the courts are single-minded on making sure that group members are protected. 
I think that's right. And that's because we have our overarching purpose and obligations set out very clearly in the Act. And so it is incumbent on the courts to ensure that the litigants, the, the class action members, are protected as best as possible. Judge, the work of the ALRC around uh, class action reforms has been something that I've followed so closely uh, in, a, in a very peripheral sense, contributed some ideas, but very modest ones. Um, we have not seen significant reform in the, in the class action space in the 30 years since the introduction of our regime. The ALRC set out a number of, if I may say so, very good ideas for reforms. Uh, without pinning you to any specifics, I just wondered if there are areas that you would like to see some of the ideas of the ALRC implemented and take it up, potentially by the new government now that we've got a change in philosophy. Well, if there were two that I was going to single out, they would be recommendations three and four. Recommendation three was about giving the express power to the court to make common fund orders. And, and I think that is essential for the ongoing maintenance of particularly of funded class actions. And recommendation four was about giving the court, the court an express power to resolve competing class actions. That has not yet been resolved to my mind effectively. We now have some judicial guidance, but it doesn't really take us anywhere near as far as I think uh, would be ideal that has force and one uh, recommendation of the ALRC that I found particularly compelling was in the context of recommendations three or four, front loading those considerations so that essentially that cost and, and delay associated with how is the funder going to be compensated and how many proceedings are going to go forward is, is regulated at an early stage. And ideally I think we'd set a 90 day time limit for all of those matters to be resolved and we think that would have a significant impact on the costs of the proceedings. Yeah, man. well, I, I agree for what it's, for, for what it's well, worth. Well, I think but... your contribution <laughs> and your ideas informed those recommendations oh, somewhat. So we were, we were grateful uh, for the work that you provided in that respect. No, I flattered to hear that, but it was a much more compelling proposal that I put forward. So, Judge, pivoting away a little, if I may, from uh, the class action regime per se, but staying in that landscape, um, the Victorian Supreme Court has introduced contingency fees. Uh, contingency fees have long been considered an important step towards greater levels of access to justice, empowering class action law firms to recover in a similar way to funders. One jurisdiction has adopted it uh, and we've seen some early jurisprudence, albeit all in the space of group costs orders being sought around um, shareholder class actions. I was interested in your observations on the development there in Victoria. Uh, will that be um, an important advantage for those seeking access for justice? Do we need a more uniform regime? Where, where do you stand in terms of the landscape on contingency fees? It's a little bit early, I think, to judge uh, what the long-term significance would be. There has certainly been a significant uptick, though, in class action filings in Victoria, and we've noticed that in the federal court. Uh, not that we are competing uh, for matters, but that is something that's come across uh, our radar. I also think we're not yet firmly settled on the extent to which the AFSL licensing requirement is going to impact on law firms. Uh, that is a matter yet to be resolved, and we don't know if this new government is going to repeal uh, that legislation that came in only very recently. So I think there's still a lot to be worked out as to how it's working in the Victorian system. But to the second part of your question, 
I think the system will only work properly if it is uniform across Australia. And the proposal we made in the report was, I thought, very modest. It was for contingency fees to be available only in class actions and heavily supervised by the court with the same requirements to give security for costs as would apply to litigation funders. And I think that would place all litigants around the country then on an even playing field. And, and that is what I would hope uh, would happen in the long run. Yes, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, there is something unusual about having uh, a choice of jurisdiction directed by the way that the uh, financing of the claim might, might yes. develop. And just one final related question on contingency fees, which is, I wonder if the profession and possibly the legislature needs to get a bit more creative to ensure uh, that the contingency fees are being used in areas where there is a real need for class actions. Uh, what one observation I'll make is that we don't seem to be able to direct class action litigation towards the more, I'll call them social justice causes. Uh, that was one of the policy objectives behind contingency fees, a noble one. Um, but may, maybe it's time to re-examine whether there needs to be a fighting fund developed uh, by the government or, or some other mechanism to ensure those overlooked types of claims are getting more attention. We did moot the possibility of, for example, a 1% levy on litigation funders' compensation to establish such a, a fund. Uh, in other jurisdictions uh, like Canada, the fund is created by statute and used through the interest on solicitors, trust accounts and the like. There are, there are various ways such a fund could be established. But the contingency fee model only works for lawyers if there's going to be a profit at the end and social justice litigation seldom results in any sort of significant compensatory outcome. Um, often what's sought is a declaration or an injunction or, or something of the like. So and unless and until the financial model uh, suits the financiers, whether they be lawyers or litigation funders, I think those sorts of class actions will still struggle uh, to get off the ground. And that is a great pity because that is primarily what Part 4A was directed to remedying. Justice Darrington, broadening out from class actions, but a substantive law area that's very relevant is the continuous disclosure regime. It's the foundation for, as you know better than me, the overwhelming majority of shareholder class action claims, the proposition that companies aren't disclosing material information to the market in a timely fashion. That's been heavily looked at uh, through a number of um, reviews. Uh, the ALRC is no stranger to, to, those, uh, to that regime and its impact on class action litigation growth. I was wondering uh, your, your impressions of how the continuous disclosure regime is evolving in view of the recent amendments to the legislation which have introduced recklessness and negligence into the test for when information needs to be disclosed. Before you answer, what I'm observing in, in, the, in the profession, I guess, uh, at a, um, at just at a practical level, is that shareholder class actions are being pleaded in a, in a way that's very similar to the way they were pleaded before those changes. But obviously the intention was to provide something more of a safe harbour. I was wondering if you're seeing, how you're seeing those amendments and, uh, and what the future for them might be. The most obvious thing I've noticed is the significant diminution in the number of shareholder class actions, um, certainly in the last 12 to 24 months, which has been quite interesting. I don't know if, if that is a cause of them. And I think we won't know 
for some time. I'm also a bit disappointed that the recommendation to have a proper economic and legal review of the effect of those provisions was not taken up and rather the legislature just resolved to, to make the amendment without properly understanding whether it would make a difference. Uh, it will be interesting too to look at ASIC breach reporting data and see whether there's been any significant difference um, in those sorts of breaches. Uh, but I really think it's just too soon uh, to see whether these changes have made a significant difference, whether they have freed boards up to make more innovative decisions and take less time away from compliance reporting. Uh, that was one of the uh, criticisms of the regime, that boards simply didn't have time to focus on the business. They were focusing on compliance. And as yet, I've not seen any data that tells us one way or the other. And I suppose a, a related question is, we haven't yet seen how the courts might approach the new normative standard and whether what practical differences that might make, of course, a product of the fact we don't have many decisions still in this space. That's right. And so there's no jurisprudence at all. We're still all speculating as to what it would mean. And that was the point of recommending a, a thorough investigation of it, because ASIC was very concerned that Australia's squeaky clean reputation um, might be diminished by these sorts of legislative changes. And we've also heard that perhaps they'll be reversed. So we might never see much development of the law in this area. Judge, I've been interested to get the view of a learned member of the judiciary about uh, the approach that the courts are taking to modern litigation and the increasing burden of mega litigation, major complex corporate litigation. I know as a practitioner, the size and shape of cases uh, is in constantly increasing. Uh, the size and the shape is becoming more complex with the way we're storing data and the number of documents that are involved. And that said, it's probably still true that every case boils down to a couple of folders at the end of the day. So <laughs> I know that the courts are also grappling with how to do things cost effectively and efficiently and, and correctly placing pressure on the profession to be more efficient. Um, could you talk from the perspective of the judiciary about how the courts um, are embracing this supervision role on, in mega litigation and what they need from the profession? Well, you may or may not be pleased to know that uh, the focus of our National Judges Conference in May next year is on managing mega litigation. <laughs> and we hope to engage very closely with the profession to help us to develop the best tools for doing that. But for the time being, I think we are obviously concerned about costs and, and resourcing of the mega litigation, because as you know, if you take a judge out for a long period of time for a case that ultimately was always destined to settle, that is a difficulty. So we are consciously thinking about whether and if so how one can create a settlement track for cases that are really unlikely to go to trial. So that is something that we are contemplating. The role of case management, of course, is, is growing and that has become a very important tool and probably the most important tool that the judges have. The other thing we are focusing on is a, a better use of referees when appropriate and sending small portions of matters out to, to referees and that should help manage some of the cases. Uh, but your, your point is well taken. There are millions of documents now, not just thousands that, that come to us. And 
it really is, I think, incumbent upon the profession to focus their attention on those two folders that at the end of the day will be material. And I think work needs to be done around the disclosure rules and perhaps it is time for us to reconsider depositions, but I know not all my colleagues agree uh, that that is the way the Australian courts should go. But there is a lot to be said uh, for the use of depositions and Justice Finkelstein um, did a lot of work on that uh, more than a decade ago. So, so the thinking has been going on for some time. And, and I suppose one advantage of the federal court, as, as some judges have recently noted, is that, that they, the court probably gives judges the powers at the moment to be creative in that space. Some judges would say that depositions are completely within power as That's we right. sit here now. And, and, and judge possibly some more bravery from the profession to, I mean, I know as a practitioner, it's very difficult for me at the start of a case to identify what I ultimately think will be the three or four core issues in the case, even though I, th I think I know them in the back of my mind. So maybe a bit of bravery from the profession with the court's encouragement to try and cut to that chase through this sort of triage process that you're talking about at an earlier stage. I like the idea of a, a settlement track, but front loading some of those considerations. That would be really helpful. Uh, the other thing that would be really helpful to the profession, I think, is the work that's coming out of our next inquiry, which uh, might make the pleading of cases more straightforward, but that's uh, another issue. Justice Derrington, the current work of the ALRC in respect of corporations and financial services regulations um, is focused on many different aspects of that. I know that one aspect will be how those the complexity of that legal territory and real estate can be simplified. I was wondering, in without getting ahead of the work, uh, what you might be able to share about the observations from that work and what Corporate Australia is saying about that work and, and maybe where we might land in terms of an outcome. Sure. Corporate Australia is saying it is complex and it is unable to be navigated with any sort of clarity and no matter how certain you might be that you have scoped the law applicable to your case, you can never quite be sure because there are these notional amendments that hide somewhere on the equivalent of the dark web. So it's like going into a black hole and you really can't be certain that the advice you are giving to your client is accurate. So that's what we're hearing from Corporate Australia. <laughs> so our task has been to work out a way to simplify that complexity. And there are a number of things that uh, we recommended in interim report A that were fairly straightforward cleanup provisions. And we're pleased to see Treasury has already uh, released an exposure draft uh, adopting those recommendations, but they're you know, very low hanging fruit type recommendations. In the second interim report, which we're pleased to say we gave to the Attorney General this week, and hopefully it will be tabled on the 30th of September of this month, so you will all be able to see it. But what we have proposed is an entirely new legislative model, which will make navigation of the legislation much more straightforward. And that comprises the statute, of course, the Corporations Act. And in that act will be the fundamental norms and obligations and the matters that really are ones that only Parliament should be able to provide for, such as serious criminal offences and high-level civil penalties. The next layer down is described as a scoping order, and that will tell people whether you're in or out of the regime. 
And then the third level comprises what we're calling rule books. And these are all the detail and prescription that is needed for the particular part of the industry being regulated. So there will be a rule book as to how to do disclosure, whereas the fundamental norm that one should disclose will be contained in the Act. But you won't need to rifle through thousands of other documents to find the rules that apply to you. And this will involve the abolition of notional amendments. So there will be no more dark law. <laughs> There'll be whole sections of the profession and broader community that will be thankful uh, if this gets the traction it deserves. So it and sounds like an enormously large piece of work. It is an enormously yeah. large piece of work. And part of the benefit of simplifying the legislation in this way, I think goes to your comments about the difficulty of pleading mega litigation because there are so many overlapping provisions that you need to go down three or four claims and plead them out. Whereas through this simplification process, we hope that you might only need to do one form of misleading and deceptive conduct, or you might only need to uh, plead best interests duty and not all the myriad other offences or penalty provisions that might fall under them. Well, synthesising that complexity is an enormous task. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're at the helm, may I say, but um, I don't envy the, the work that you've had to do to get no, there. No, well, the ALRC team has, has done a tremendous job and the amount of data analysis that's been done is quite exceptional. And that's what's enabled us to do this work. One member of the team has scraped the entire Commonwealth Register of Legislation and dissected it in very many ways to tell us where the complexity is. Hopefully that person's on holiday in Hawaii now. He is yeah. currently it, on two weeks leave. Yeah, it's, it's appropriate. <laughs> Judge, um, you don't need me to list your significant achievements throughout your ongoing career, uh, including your recent uh, honours, but I did want to ask you because it'll be a unique opportunity for our audience to hear from you about uh, and I know this is completely off topic, but in your journey to date in the law, through the many different phases that you've passed and your many different roles, are, are there some guiding lessons or, or principles or tricks of the trade that, um, that the audience listening to us, perhaps a, a next generation of lawyers after us, uh, will be interested to hear the things that you've learned that have been successful for you or perhaps not so successful for you? I think serendipity probably <laughs> sums up my career. But more seriously, perhaps this generation doesn't need me to tell them this, but what I've learned is taking every opportunity that is made available to you can't be overestimated. And the fact that you are not following what you think is the path to legal success, for example, law school, postgraduate studies, uh, graduate program, stay in a firm, become a partner, go to the bar, go to the bench. That is not the only pathway. And I've had a very zigzaggy pathway throughout my career. And it's enabled me to meet people from all around the world. I've had the most extraordinary opportunity to learn from academics and lawyers and judges from all around the world. I've seen things that um, other members of the profession will never have had an opportunity to see or do. And so that's really my advice. Whatever door opens, see if it's worth taking a punt 
because you never know where it might lead you. That's, it does sound like sage advice, if I may say so. And, and it's a nice segue, Judge, into uh, a question bringing us back to your, your, your current tenure with the ALRC. May I ask, um, that perspective that you bring, that, that diverse background that you bring has probably given you a shopping list of, of, of things you'd like the ALRC to look at. And it's already been an impressive shopping list. Um, but if, if we could look to the future a little bit, where would you like to see the ALRC go in terms of its areas of inquiry? And what's, the, what are, what's most in need of attention? I think there are two things that I see as really in need of attention at the moment. Uh, one is the development of artificial intelligence and how we are using that in the legal system and particularly around administrative decision-making. I think that is the next frontier for how this country will be regulated and overseen. And I, and I think that really does need some critical attention by a law reform commission. But in conjunction with the technology specialists, it's not something that a law reform commission can do on its own because we simply don't have that expertise. The, other, the one piece of legislation that I think needs serious attention is the Migration Act. It, it really is a most difficult piece of legislation and is almost as opaque as the Corporations Act, but perhaps not quite. And I think if we are to use uh, judicial resources appropriately uh, and to treat people fairly, the Migration Act really needs um, a good going over. These are, these are large topics. The ALSC's role and mandate is an important one. It's not getting any more limited as, as we progress in time. It's not. And I, and I hope that the, the new government uh, resources the ALRC appropriately into the future so that it continue, can continue to do the work that it's been renowned for over the past now 45 or so years. Well, the work in, in uh, that, that, that resonates because the work in the class action space um, remains, uh, in terms of the principles enunciated there, a guiding, uh, a guideline for, I think, practitioners and hopefully for the legislature. But in an in area of law that I'm close to where questions of social justice, economics, law, the broader community, media, the ALRC is a body uniquely placed with respect to look at those matters. Yes. and. The ability to draw in experts uh, is something that many other organisations don't have and we've been very fortunate. In some ways the ALRC is a cost saving to government because the input we get from the profession, from the academy, from experts in other fields is all voluntary. So the amount of unpaid work that goes into what the ALRC does with our team of only 10 um, is, is quite remarkable. And so we, we very much hope, and I hope that as I leave the organisation at the end of this year, that it um, can continue to steer a path uh, doing the quality of work uh, that it's been able to achieve uh, thanks to the team. Uh, over the past five years. Well, and, and, uh, and your leadership, and I'm sure with uh, your legacy will, will put the ALRC in great stead. Uh, Justice Derrington, it is, uh, it, it's a privilege for us to be able to speak to you today on, on just terms. And I know for our audience, it's such a rare opportunity to speak to a, a judge of your calibre. So thank you for being generous with your time and we're really grateful for you to be a guest. Thank you very much, Jason, and best of luck with the podcast series. Thank you, Judge. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills.
For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.